All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. So as Keith said, we are continuing in our Galatians series today. So if you have a Bible, turn to where we left off last week in uh, Galatians chapter 3. I believe we're starting in verse 26. 3.26. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for that reminder we just sung that we are your sons and daughters. And Lord, we thank you for this passage we're about to look at um, that is going to reinforce that, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to approach uh, these words with reverence. Um, Lord, help us to hear them coming from you. Lord, open us up to receive whatever it is that you want to tell us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is our fifth week in this book, and we still have a ways to go. But I would say if you were going to pick out one passage to represent Galatians, the one we're looking at today is the one that you should choose. Uh, This is kind of the high point of the whole letter. So let's read it. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. When I pray for people, I've noticed that one of my most common prayers is, Lord, help this person to see themselves the way that you see them. Help themselves to see, help them to see themselves the way you see them. Because how we see ourselves has a huge impact on our lives, right? Some people have a very negative view of themselves. They think, I'm a failure, I'm worthless. I'm incapable. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who see themselves very, very highly, right? I'm the best. And they feel entitled to everything that they want and honor and prestige wherever they go, right? And then there are even some people who tend to oscillate back and forth between those two extremes. Some days they think, I'm the best. And other days they think, I'm the worst. Now, what I love about this passage is it gives us some fundamentals for how to think about ourselves, about how God sees us, 
and how God wants us to see ourselves. Now, just to be clear, okay, Paul says that this way of thinking about yourself is limited to those who are in Christ. Right? In Christ, you are all children of God. Now, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, there's an analogy I'd like to suggest, and I'm going to keep coming back to this throughout the message, so pay close attention here. One way of thinking about it is 2,000 years ago, Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, it produced a wave, a wave that has been going throughout history, influencing history, influencing people. And what it means to be in Christ is to step into that wave, to allow yourself to be submerged by that wave. Which means you allow Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection to be the primary thing influencing your life. Okay? You allow his teaching, what he says about you, what he's done for you, to be the formative thing in defining who you are. You step into the wave. That's what it means to be in Christ. And Paul says that the way that we enter into this wave is through faith, which sounds too simple to be true, but it's what he says. Basically, to step into that wave is to trust that Jesus is the supreme authority, that what Jesus says is true, to trust that what he says about you is true. That's what it means to, through faith, um, be in Christ. You step into that wave. You willingly step into that wave. Now, I'd like us to notice that Paul immediately talks about baptism when he talks about being in Christ. And that's because baptism, water baptism, has always been the physical symbol that you have stepped into that wave, that you have willingly chosen to step into the wave of the influence of Jesus. Um, so, you know, this wave analogy fits really well with baptism, right? We got that water theme going. Um, now, I want to be clear here. I don't want to suggest that if you've never been water baptized, that you are not actually in Christ. The way that we come into Christ, right, is through faith. That's the main thing. But baptism is God's chosen symbol for us publicly expressing the fact that we have moved into that wave. So if you have not been baptized and you consider yourself to be in Christ, you should be baptized. And uh, so if you haven't been baptized, I want to encourage you, uh, as Keith said, we are going to have a baptism service on August 29th. That's the plan. And if you would like to be baptized, let me know. Email me if you want to publicly say, yes, I have chosen to submerge my life in Jesus' life. I've chosen to move into that wave. Um, this is a great opportunity to do it. I have a brief class that you have to go through. Uh, right now, it looks like we have two people who are interested in doing that class. So if you would like to join them, let me know soon. Okay. <clears throat> but anyway, Paul says that if we are in Christ... If we have by faith moved into that wave, uh, then certain things are true of us. We should see ourselves in a certain way. And specifically, he says that we should see ourselves as sons of God. Now, the NIV translation puts it a little bit more inclusively. It says children of God. Uh, but I'm going to tell you something that at first might make you a little uncomfortable. 
Um, in the original language, it's very clear that it's specifically sons of God. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Uyas. It's not the word for children. Now, the NIV has translated it as children because it doesn't want to make it sound like it's excluding women, which it's not. But it does specifically say sons of God. So you might be wondering, okay, well, why does it say specifically sons of God? Isn't that sexist? Isn't that excluding women? Well, actually, when we understand what Paul is saying here, it's really, really beautiful. In those days, the only people that could inherit the family inheritance were the sons. Uh, that was the way it was in those days. The sons were the privileged ones. They were the heirs in the family. So when Paul says, you are all sons of God, oh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, when, when Paul says, you are all sons of God, he doesn't mean you're all men if you're in Christ. What he means is you're all heirs in God's family regardless of whether you are male and female. So what at first might sound like kind of a really patriarchal thing that, that Paul is saying is actually uh, radically progressive for his time. Okay? He, is, he is saying that whether you are male or female in God's family has no bearing on you receiving the promises of God, you being welcomed into his family, you being welcomed as equal uh, partners in the family. It's really beautiful. So there's, there's, you might say there's a radically egalitarian message here. And that radically egalitarian message comes through pretty strongly in verse 28 when Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is just, this is an incredible proclamation here. To put it in perspective, we have evidence that in the first century there was a prayer of thanksgiving that Jewish men would sometimes say which is, I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was the culture of the time. That was the attitude. And so here you have Paul directly subverting that, right? Turning that on its head. Now, I want to be clear about what Paul is saying and what he's not saying here. He's not saying that it's wrong to recognize some people in the church as ethnically Jewish and some people as Gentiles. He's not saying that it's wrong to recognize some people in the church as male and some people as female. Male and female is part of God's design. It's part of the way he, he created the world. It's when he created humanity in the very beginning, it says he created human beings as male and female. So it's, it's a good part of God's design. And also, there are times uh, in Paul's letters where he gives specific instructions to women in the church and times where he gives specific instructions to men in the church. Okay, So he's not saying that these categories don't matter at all in terms of our identity. But what he's saying is that these categories should have no bearing whatsoever on whether we are children of God and inheritors of God's promises. No bearing whatsoever. 
Right? He's saying God doesn't favor Jews over Gentiles. He doesn't favor free people over slaves or men over women. He doesn't do that. He doesn't value the privileged more than the underprivileged. He loves and he welcomes and he forgives regardless of our social status, regardless of our gender, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our nationality. And I think if Paul were writing today, he might emphasize some uh, other social categories. You know, we in the church don't worry too much about Jew and Gentile these days. Uh, but he might say, in Christ there is neither rich nor poor. Or, in Christ there is neither black nor white. Or, in Christ there is neither American nor foreigner. Because none of those categories should have any bearing on our sense of belonging in God's family or on our status in the church. All of us have equal access to the Holy Spirit. We are all equal inheritors of God's promised Holy Spirit into the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings. So all of us in Christ are equally God's children. That's what Paul's saying here. But the part of this passage that I really want to focus on this morning is chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba was the Aramaic word for father, but... That translation, Father, it doesn't quite capture the significance of Abba. I don't know about you, but I have never once addressed my father as Father. Right? I've never tried to get his attention by going, oh, Father. I've never done that. Maybe you have. I never have. I call my father Dad. And Abba is a word that's much more like Dad for us than Father. It would be the title that you would use of your father when you were in the same house just hanging out with your father. You, dad. That's the kind of title that Abba is. Now, Jewish people did not ordinarily address God as Abba. That wasn't something you did. But Jesus did. And what Paul is saying is that when the Holy Spirit fills our hearts, we start thinking of the creator of the universe as our Abba, as our dad. Just like Jesus did. You know, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how one of Paul's arguments against the false teachers was that we can see that the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. And if the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit apart from the law, then clearly God accepts them without them following the law. Right? That's one of Paul's central arguments. And so that raises the question, well, what does it look like when people have received the Holy Spirit? Because for Paul and everyone observing, it was just so clear that these Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit, even though they weren't uh, obeying all of the Mosaic law. And here we get some of the answer to that. One of the signs that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our hearts is that we start to think of God, the creator of the universe, as our father, as our dad. 
There's this shift that takes place in our minds. That is one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit at work in us. You know, apart from the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives, we might think of God as non-existent. We might think of God as uninvolved. You know, we might think of him primarily as a cosmic police officer or judge. But when the Holy Spirit fills us, we come to recognize God as Abba, Dad. And we start to have this sense that we're not orphans in the universe. When you think about it, there's two possible ways to go through your life when you think about who you are. You can think of yourself as an orphan in the universe, or you can think of yourself as a child of God, loved and cared for by your Creator. I don't know if there's really an in-between those two positions. You can think of yourself as one or the other. You know, some people have a really hard time thinking in terms of that second option, as thinking of themselves as, as children of God, loved by their Creator. You know, some people think of the vastness of time and space, and they think, how could there be a Creator God who cares about me? And, you know, I will admit, the vastness of time and space, when you really contemplate it, is overwhelming. Uh, I've done some thinking about this myself, just because it's fascinating to me. A while ago, I figured out that if you were to get in a car, a space car, and travel 65 miles an hour from one end of the solar system to the other, that would take you 13,166 years. No food or bathroom breaks. Right? 65 miles an hour. 13,166 years just to get from one end of the solar system to the other. But of course, our solar system is just one of billions in the Milky Way galaxy. And to really blow your mind, if, if your hand was the size of the solar system, so just imagine, from your thumb to your pinky is a 13,166-year car trip. If that's the solar system, North America is the Milky Way galaxy. Incredibly vast, right? And then the Milky Way galaxy, scientists say, is just one of billions of galaxies. And then, you know, not only is the universe unfathomably vast, but the amount of time that scientists say it's been around is unfathomably vast, 14 billion years. We can't even conceive of how much time and space there is. So some people contemplate all this and they think, there's just no way. There's no way we're not orphans in the universe. There's no way there's a God who cares about us. But here's the thing. When you think about it, there's not a lot of logic to that argument. Think about the people that you love. Does the vastness of the universe or the time that it's existed have any influence whatsoever on the amount of love you feel for those people? 
You know, if tomorrow you found out that the universe was ten times bigger than what I just described, is it going to make you love your kids any less? Are you going to think? It's not going to diminish it at all, right? It's going to have no impact. So why would it be any different for God? Someone who has an orphan mindset looks up at the starry night sky and they say, look at how insignificant we are. Look at how meaningless everything is. But someone with a child of God mindset looks up at that same starry night sky and thinks, look at the work of my father's hands. See the difference? For those with an orphan mindset, the starry night sky represents the indifference of the universe, the meaninglessness of the universe. It represents loneliness, cosmic loneliness. But to those with a child of God mindset, the starry night sky represents the power and the glory of the one that they call Abba, Dad. This morning, I want to encourage us to choose to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, the voice that says, You are not an orphan in the universe. The creator of this unbelievably vast universe is not indifferent to you. You matter to him. He loves you. Choose to listen to that voice. If we want to be followers of Jesus, that's the voice that we should be listening to. Because Jesus encouraged us over and over again throughout his ministry to think of God as a loving parent. One of my favorite examples, Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. Jesus says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I love the way Jesus is talking here. He's saying, you should be assuming that God is good, that God is like a loving parent, and that God wants to give you what is good, what is truly good. He says, you know, you, you fathers here, you, you guys are imperfect, you're sinful, but you still know how to give a good gift to your kid. So how much more so should God know how to, to give good gifts to you if you ask him? Right? He's teaching a certain frame of mind. He's teaching the opposite of the orphan mindset. He's saying you should think about God as a loving parent who knows what's good and who wants to give you what is good. Another example, Matthew 6, verse 26. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Again, turn from the orphan mindset. Trust. You have a heavenly father, and he values you. He values you more than the birds, and he cares about the birds. He takes care of them. But he values you way more than that. Believe that. You know, the Lord's Prayer, that's another example. 
When the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray, what are the first two words Jesus taught them to say? Our Father. In other words, you're not an orphan. Don't think of yourself as an orphan in the universe. Trust that you have a heavenly Father. Abba. Dad. Maybe you have a hard time thinking of yourself as a child of God. Maybe you have a hard time thinking of God as a loving parent. Maybe you tend to think of God as angry and um, ready to condemn. A lot of people do. Some people are afraid to even go near a church because they feel like if I get near to God, then punishment is going to fall on me. That's a very common mindset. Just recently, I heard someone say, oh, I don't know if you want me to go to church. The building might collapse. People always say that. It's like, ha, 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 okay, yeah, no, no, it won't. (laughs) But Jesus, you know, Jesus taught us to think differently about God. And probably the best example of that is the parable of the prodigal son. Beautiful, beautiful parable. You probably know the story. Jesus describes a, a, a scenario where a son goes and asks his father for the family inheritance, which is a slap in the face for a dad, because it's basically like saying, I don't care whether you live or die. Normally, you didn't get an inheritance until your father died. But this guy you know, had the audacity to go to his dad and say, just give it to me now. And the father in the story obliges, and then the son goes out, and Jesus describes him as spending all the money on wild living, Wild living. He goes out, he parties it all away. And then he's completely destitute. He's like an addict living on the streets. And he thinks to himself, I've got nowhere to go. Got no money. Maybe, just maybe, my dad will take me back and let me work for him as a servant. And so he starts making his way back home. And then when the father sees him in the distance... The father doesn't think, oh, that scoundrel. It says the father runs toward him, he embraces him, and he receives him back into the house, not as a servant, but as a son. And he throws a party to welcome him home. Right? Through that parable, Jesus is teaching us to think of God as Abba, as Dad. Right? Not as somebody who's eager to condemn us, but as somebody who is eager to welcome us home if we'll just come. Right? Someone who's eager to embrace us, even if we've done wrong, even if we've sinned. He is more interested in being reconciled to us than in condemning us. He celebrates it when we come home. Some other people, you know, they stop thinking of God as Abba because it it feels childish to them, or maybe it feels unenlightened. I've noticed that there are quite a few people who think of themselves as more spiritually progressed, who rather than calling God God or Father, they'll talk about the universe. Have you noticed this at all? People being like, oh, it doesn't matter if you pray to God or you pray to the universe. You know, just whatever you prefer. There's a huge difference between those two things, right? God is personal. God can be Father. God can be Abba. The universe can't be those things. The universe is impersonal. When 
not supposed to think of God as impersonal. We're supposed to think of him as a loving parent. If we're following Jesus, that is key to what Jesus taught. If we want to step into the wave that Jesus initiated, it means coming to see God as loving parent, as father, as Abba. So if you've drifted from seeing God as Abba, the solution is to choose to move back into that wave. Saturate yourself in the teachings of Jesus. Link yourself with the community of believers who recognize him as Abba. Put your faith and trust in him. Re remember his sacrifice on the cross, right? That if you want proof that God is, is loving parent, not, no better proof for that exists than the cross, right? That God would humble himself and take on flesh and then die a humiliating death on a cross for your sake. I don't care how vast the universe is, right? If that's the truth, God cares about you. God loves you. And if you feel like you've drifted, well, if you've never invited the Holy Spirit to come into your life, to, if you've never said, I want to move into this wave, Lord, then do that. Invite God into your life. Invite Christ into your life. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into you, the Holy Spirit cries, Abba, Father. Right? You, you come to start to recognize Jesus as your, or God as your dad. And when you do that, God will not turn you away. Like the father and the prodigal son, he will run to embrace you. He will celebrate you coming to him. And he will tell you who you are, his beloved son or his beloved daughter. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning we would learn from Jesus. We would learn to see you as our Father, as a loving parent. And Lord, we recognize that you are holy. We do recognize you are the, the supreme authority, that you are the ultimate judge. But Lord, we thank you that you through Jesus and through your Holy Spirit, teach us to say, Abba, Father. Lord, I pray if any of us have drifted from relationship with you, uh, that this morning we would sense you calling us back, calling us back into fellowship with you. Lord, remind us that we are safe with you. Remind us that you are a Father who knows how to give good gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.